0: Constitutional scholar Jeff Rosen reflects on his career, saying that.
1: Most importantly, I hope people will be inspired to educate themselves about the Constitution, to be lifelong learners, to engage in the both uh, responsibility and privilege of being able to spend parts of every day cultivating their faculties of reason and uh, expanding their minds and ultimately uh, becoming all the more engaged in the American. Experiment. There's no higher calling as a citizen, and I think there's all, nothing more satisfying uh, as I get older, I think, than to be a lifelong learner, to, to just to be open to new ideas and new arguments and to stretching oneself and to, and to cultivating one's faculties.
0: Stay tuned to hear more about the applicability of the United States Constitution to today's headlines. Hello and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show.
2: We're here today with Jeff Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Jeff is a professor at George Washington School of Law in Washington, D.C., a contributing editor at The Atlantic Magazine, a journalist, and the author of six books on American history and the Constitution. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Doing great. Great to be with you excellent thanks so the first question i'd like to pose to you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why
1: well the mission of the national constitution center is uh, a very inspiring one it's to disseminate information about the u.s constitution on a non-partisan basis in order to increase awareness and understanding of the constitution among the american people and those inspiring words come from congress during the bicentennial of the constitution and we advance that mission in all sorts of ways here at the Constitution Center. We, the centerpiece of our efforts to advance this urgent public interest in educating Americans about the Constitution is called the Interactive Constitution. Your listeners can check it out online. It's also available on the App Store at Interactive Constitution. And we've assembled the leading liberal and conservative scholars in America to write about every clause of the Constitution, describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. It's just a a constitutional feast. Uh, Everyone from kids in middle school and high school to law clerks and judges are learning from it, and it's gotten 15 million hits since it launched launched, uh, two years ago, and it's just a a really inspiring project. And it's co-sponsored by the leading liberal and conservative lawyers organizations in America, the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, and those two great groups are co-sponsoring many of our public programs here in Philadelphia and around the country. We have traveling debates, traveling to cities across America. We have panels and symposia here in Philly. We have this great weekly podcast called We the People where I interview the leading liberal and conservative scholars. Again, all this stuff is archived and, and videoed and, and blasted out on all social channels. So it's just this wonderful opportunity, unique in America in these polarized times, to bring together thought leaders, scholars who disagree about all sorts of uh policy issues but are committed to constitutional education and debate. And that's why I'm so I feel so lucky to be here at the National Constitution Center.
2: Let's start with a basic question, Jeff, that perhaps many of our listeners might be thinking, although they might be too embarrassed to ask if given the opportunity. But why does the Constitution matter and how is it relevant to the lives of those listening to this episode today?
1: The Constitution matters because it defines the limits of power on the various branches of government, and prevents any one branch from speaking in the name of we the people. The Constitution is crucial to preserving the fact that in America, we the people have the ultimate power, and only when after serious, thoughtful, and long deliberation we've embedded something into the Constitution does it count as fundamental law. So the Constitution is important, uh, not only for the Bill of Rights, which is important, Defines our First Amendment rights of free speech and our Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable searches and seizures—those those rights of negative liberty against the government—are very important. But just as important are the structural protections of the Constitution. The fact that Article One gives Congress uh, broad but limited powers, and Congress has no power to infringe free speech. The Article One, Article Two defines the powers of the President and says that. He gets to repel sudden attacks, but it's Congress who gets to make war. Article Three creates the judicial branch, which has the power to strike down laws passed by legislatures when they conflict with the fundamental law of the Constitution. So for all these reasons, the Constitution is crucial in organizing our government, in dispersing and checking power, and ultimately in preserving liberty, which is a gift that the framers of the Constitution thought came from God or nature and not from government, and which is inherent. To all Americans.
2: So, in the last few years, speaking as we are in 2018, a number of constitutional issues have actually entered the public lexicon, uh, which isn't always the most, uh, which is somewhat uncommon uh, over the course of the last few decades. And we've heard discussion of terms such as emoluments. We've heard discussion of the electoral college and now how that affected the presidential uh, election of 2016. Um, we've heard calls for constitutional conventions. Uh there've been many different uh mentions in the popular media of the constitution and of often uh, overlooked elements of the constitution. Jeff, would you discuss with our listeners how the nation has been responding, how the relationship between the people and the Constitution has been evolving, particularly over the last few years.
1: Well, vigorous constitutional debate is nothing new in America. It goes back to the founding when there was a vigorous debate about whether and how to pass the Constitution, and ever since then it's remarkable when you read American history how central all of the most contested political debates ultimately became constitutional debates. There are lots of places to look. I've just finished a really interesting book by a scholar called Hal Brough, Uh, Untrodden Ground, the Presidency and the Constitution. From Washington to uh, Adams and Jefferson, all the way up through the 19th and 20th century, each presidency was defined by highly technical constitutional debates, many of which we've forgotten now from the scope of the Fugitive Slave Clause in the years leading up to the civil war, to the scope of the taxing power in the late 19th century, uh, to the scope of Congress's power to regulate the economy during the New Deal. So all uh, And you mentioned the Foreign Emoluments Clause. I just uh, finished a a short biography of President William Howard Taft, who turned down a gift from the Japanese government because he thought it violated the Foreign Emoluments Clause. So uh, although the particular debates we're having now are uh, often unique, the fact that America has... Highly technical and very significant constitutional debates in the public sphere uh, has defined our history from the beginning. Um, in the past couple of years, things have gotten very polarized, and this preceded the 2016 election. Uh, it's, it's been really a phenomenon that's been a couple decades in the making, but as red and blue America have s- moved into separate areas of the country and as new social media technologies are uh, separating people into filter bubbles and echo chambers, as, as they've been called, there's an acrimony and polarization greater than at any time since the Civil War, according to some scholars who measure these things by objective measures. So our, our politics are, are highly fractured right now. And as a result, people are turning to the courts to resolve issues that the political branches can't resolve, which means the Supreme Court has become increasingly central to our political debates. And they're also making arguments about each branch exceeding its constitutional powers when they believe that that's the case. So uh, for us at the Constitution Center, this is a sign of the system's health, not its weakness. This is exactly what the framers intended: was for the various branches to check each other, to contend vigorously about who gets to speak in the name of we the people, and to have healthy, you know, extremely vigorous debate. Um, the Constitution will not solve our, our political problems, and it won't solve the problem of polarization, but at least it provides a framework us to have civil debates at a time when they seem to be very much in short supply. Uh,
2: Jeff, as a constitutional scholar, you'll no doubt have spent quite a deal of time thinking about the evolution of the power, particularly of the federal executive branch. The founding fathers of the United States could not have imagined the power that the President of the United States has in the 21st century, beginning perhaps most notably with President Franklin Roosevelt, uh, and his stacking of the supreme court and uh, and moving on through World War II and the latter half of the twentieth century to the expansion of the powers of the executive branch in the federal government you 've seen a real uh, evolution over time of those powers. Do you have uh, any thoughts as a constitutional scholar um, about the extent to which the judicial branch and the legislative branch are properly checking the executive branch, and the extent to which perhaps uh, whether or not uh, the executive power in um, in the federal government has exceeded uh, what was originally uh, defined by the U.S. Constitution?
1: Uh, it's a great question, and I think it's fair to say, you know, neutrally that the modern presidency is not the one the framers envisioned. They thought that Congress would be the most dangerous branch, And they also envisioned a kind of legislative supremacy where Congress would take the lead in making policy and declaring war. And the presidency would be a kind of ministerial agent who would uh, carry out Congress's will. That conception, which was called the Whig conception of the presidency, uh, very much evolved. Uh, President Andrew Jackson was the first president to claim popular authority directly from the people rather than uh, from the Constitution. And the real uh, clash over these two conceptions, the populist or popular conception of the presidency and the constitutionalist uh, perspective came during the election of 1912 when uh, Theodore Roosevelt claimed uh, that the president was a steward of the people who represented the people's will directly. Woodrow Wilson, who ultimately won the election, took a similarly uh, democratic view of, of the president's popular authority. And William Howard Taft represented the old constitutionalist view that the president can do only what the Constitution explicitly allows, rather than Roosevelt, who said the Constitution could do anything, the president could do anything, the Constitution didn't forbid. And then, as, as, you, as you said uh, correctly, by the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt, the imperial presidency, as Arthur Schlesinger called it, which was a version of the Roosevelt-Wilson Roosevelt view, uh, predominated, so that today we have a presidency claiming the authority to do all sorts of things such as send troops for uh, months without congressional authorization to even engage in undeclared wars such as the war on terror with uh, congressional authorization that isn't always explicit all of which the framers would have been surprised by. Also the rise of executive orders, and this is not unique to uh, Republican or Democratic presidents, both have used them increasingly, but most recently both President Trump and President Obama used executive orders to achieve by fiat what they were unable to achieve from Congress, and that would have uh, surprised the framers as well. Are the courts in Congress checking the president effectively? Um, Congress has not done a very vigorous job in asserting its constitutional prerogatives. Uh, in the old days, it was much more vigorous about passing resolutions or even withholding funds from the president when Congress thought the president acted uh, unconstitutionally. But the Supreme Court has certainly been vigorous about checking the president, and in cases ranging from those in Guantanamo Bay involving President Bush's power in the war on terror to decisions checking uh, President Obama, uh, uh, even to lower court decisions, questioning President Trump's travel ban, we've seen the judges are, are quite willing to uh, rein in executive power if they think it violates its boundaries. So uh, we have a presidency that isn't what the framers intended, but we do have at least the judicial branch uh, trying to enforce limitations on the president in ways the framers would have
2: approved. So Jeff, you mentioned that the uh, Supreme Court of the United States has been willing to check uh, the President of the United States. There is a term that has been circulating, perhaps more frequently in legal circles than in uh, populist uh, hoi polloi circles, uh, and that, of course, is uh, the notion of an activist bench. What, uh, to what extent might uh, someone argue that the Supreme Court, in checking um, the President of the United States, has been an activist bench pushing their own ideology and principles uh, and prioritizing those over the principles uh, expounded and put into law by the people's representatives in the Congress. And to what extent are they not actually uh, activist jurists, but instead are merely fulfilling their constitutional obligations to check the president of the United States? Well, it all
1: depends on what the meaning of activist is. And activism is a very malleable term, which tends to mean whatever the user approves of. Generally, people call decisions activists if they don't like them, and they say they're not activists if they like them. You need a theory of constitutional interpretation in order to evaluate whether a decision is activist or not, or a neutral definition of activism. The most neutral definition of activism is a decision that strikes down a law. If the Supreme Court says, Congress, you've acted unconstitutionally and strikes down the law, according to some definitions, that's activist, whether even though it might be correct. If Congress passes a law abridging free speech, then the court is supposed to strike it down. Others counter, no, it's not activism to strike down a law that clashes with the Constitution. That's the court's job. So uh, so then, then we're back to the question of what's the right way to interpret the Constitution. And the truth is that judges and citizens disagree vigorously about that question there are a bunch of methodologies of interpretation that it would be great for listeners to familiarize themselves with so they can pick the one they like best. Uh, some judges are textualists and originalists. Uh, the, the late justice Scalia was the leading judge who said that the constitution should be interpreted in light of its original public meaning at the time that the provision was framed. According to that definition, a decision is activist when it diverges from original understanding and, uh, restrained when it enforces the original understanding. Um, Uh, Another methodology is focusing on judicial precedent, what has the court said before, and and, and under that guise, a decision as activist when it overturns a a precedent uh, without good reason. Others focus on history and tradition and try to identify rights that have been deeply rooted in American history and a decision is activist when it invents new rights, like critics say the right of privacy in the cases leading up to Roe v. Wade that isn't written down in the text of the Constitution and not deeply rooted in its history. Uh, Natural law is another way to interpret the Constitution. There are certain rights that come from God or nature, not from government, as Thomas Jefferson said, and for judges to enforce them, even though they might not be written down in the Constitution, could lead to a a very libertarian conception. And then you could be a pragmatist and think that judges should make decisions that are practical and generally deferential and allow decisions to be made in the political sphere rather than second-guessing political decisions unless there are really good reasons for doing so. So obviously we're not going to... Uh, you can't say one methodology is uh, correct, although its adherents often think that it is. Many of them have distinguished adherents. What I just want listeners to do is not use the term activist just to say that a decision is bad. You have to come up with a rubric or a methodology to evaluate whether it's correct or not correct and please, and recognize that there are lots of competing methodologies with good arguments on all sides.
2: So, Jeff, by now, I'm sure our listeners would agree with the Los Angeles Times characterization of you as the nation's most widely read and influential legal commentator. You've written so six books. as Mother mother speaker. <laughs> <laughs> but it was definitely hyperbole. Um, so you've written six books, uh, as I mentioned earlier. You've written about Louis Brandeis, a former justice of the Supreme Court. You've written uh, extensively on the Supreme Court, William Howard Taft, who, with both the President and Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, freedom and security, courts, and privacy. Would you speak to us about uh, how you chose these topics and and the importance of not only leading a Constitution Center and teaching students in a school of law, but also uh, reaching out to the public as a journalist, as a contributing editor at Atlantic uh, Magazine, and uh, as an author of, of numerous books, Uh, about the judicial branch of government. Why is it that you've been engaged in so many simultaneous uh, tasks pertaining to the Constitution?
1: Well, I am a journalist at heart. My first great job right out of law school was uh, uh, being a legal affairs editor of the New Republic magazine, uh, which was a huge break for a recent law school graduate. And I just uh, found the experience of writing about the Supreme Court and the Constitution for the public to be the most satisfying thing imaginable. So I've always both enjoyed and felt this deep calling to translate constitutional arguments in ways that the public can understand and to write about them. And I love doing that in journalism and books. And the books have, you know, the topics sort of present themselves. The first books on privacy arose out of journalistic pieces I've been writing about the Monica Lewinsky scandal and the Clinton impeachment and then efforts to understand how changes in law and technology had made the impeachment possible. That Then after 9-11, uh, the post-security uh, world and the, the technologies it produced led to a book on how to balance uh, liberty and security. And my favorite books are homework assignments that just come because people ask me to write them. So the book on the Supreme Court was a companion book to a PBS series on the court And the most recent ones on Brandeis and Taft were assignments for series on, uh, in in the case of Brandeis, on the Yale Jewish Live series and Taft, the American President series. As a journalist, I I write best on really tight deadlines. I like to have kind of six-month deadlines to write short books, and fear is a great motivating factor, so that allows you to write them quickly. But um, it's just wonderful to be able to learn about new subjects uh, and then share what you've learned with uh, the public. It's, it's, a, it's Ultimately, it's all part of uh, being a, a learner and
2: a, a, a teacher. So, Jeff, we're coming back full circle to the beginning of our conversation where we were discussing National Constitution Center. You mentioned something at that time that I'd like to explore a little more deeply right now. You mentioned a topic which is nonpartisan civic education. You spoke about how Uh, we've become a more polarized nation, uh, and you've emphasized the importance of this interactive constitution uh, at the Constitution Center. Would you speak about why nonpartisan civic education is important? So that's two parts. One, why must uh, civic education be nonpartisan? And two, why must we even have civic education? And then what would you say, how would you evaluate the state of civic knowledge and civic engagement in the nation today?
1: Those are all really important questions. I, the state of civic knowledge is not good. Uh, the, a recent poll by the Annenberg Foundation found that knowledge of the three branches of government was at its lowest ebb in the past six years and only 25% of Americans could name all three branches of government. That is not a good state to be in. Uh, why is it important to have civic education? Because James Madison and the other framers believed that the fate of the republic turned on it, that unless citizens were aware of their rights, unless they were aware of basic constitutional principles, then they would make hasty decisions ruled by passion rather than reason, and ultimately our liberties would degenerate into demagogues and the mob. The framers believed that we would only pick thoughtful representatives who deliberated in the public interest if we educated ourselves about history, the Constitution, and the basic principles that underlie our government. So this is not just some feel-good luxury. This was uh, crucial to the existential survival of the American experiment. And we've seen that Americans who are aware of their liberties and their history are more likely to support institutions such as the presidency, the Congress, the courts, uh, not their particular inhabitants, but just their existence, and to be engaged uh, in uh, civic dialogue. Um, Why is it important for civic education to be nonpartisan? Transpartisan might be just as good a word, but the truth is that there are good arguments on both sides of the most important constitutional questions facing America today. The Constitution, as Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, is made for people of fundamentally differing points of view. And we need to learn to separate our political views from our constitutional views. That's what we teach at the National Constitution Center. We need to recognize that we might think that gun control, for example, is a really good idea, but the Second Amendment forbids it, or it's a bad idea, but the Second Amendment allows it. And only by having the discipline to make constitutional rather than political arguments. Can we really engage in uh, the constitutional debate? And, and, and only by hearing the arguments on both sides can we learn to, to engage in that act of creative and imaginative uh, separation. So that's why the, the, the mandate of the Constitution Center comes from the U.S. Congress, but it was Congress was very wise during that brief shining moment during the bicentennial of the Constitution when it created one Center for Nonpartisan Civic Education, because that also means that we're a convening space that can bring together people of very different points of views, liberals, libertarians, and conservatives, all to explore areas of agreement and disagreement about the Constitution, and that citizens who disagree very strongly about these issues can find this to be a welcoming place of education, a place of learning, a laboratory of democracy where they can hear the best
2: arguments on all sides and make up their own mind. And Jeff... As much as it pains me to say it, we are approaching the end of this podcast episode, and as such, I'd like to ask you a final two-part question. Would you please speak to the visitors of the National Constitution Center about the importance of civic engagement, uh, which you've just done to an extent, but more specifically, why you have uh, dedicated yourself to public service throughout your career, and what, at the end of your career, you would hope your legacy will become. Uh, so why have you been engaged in advancing the public interest and what will have been the impact at the end of your career? Well, I was extraordinarily
1: lucky at every stage of my career to have jobs that involved a component of public education. I think being a journalist uh, is ultimately an act of public education. Being a law professor is and, and working at this wonderful educational institution, the National Constitution Center, is just an Opportunity to take all of this learning and translate it for audiences from eight to eighty and uh, and beyond. And what will the uh, legacy be, or the effect be? Uh, most importantly, I hope people will be inspired to educate themselves about the Constitution, to be lifelong learners, to engage in the both uh, responsibility and privilege of being able to spend parts of every day cultivating their faculties of reason and uh, expanding their minds and ultimately uh, becoming all the more engaged in the American experiment. There's no higher calling as a citizen, and I think there's nothing more satisfying uh, as I get older, I think, than to be a lifelong learner, just to be open to new ideas and new arguments and to stretching oneself and and to cultivating one's faculties. Uh, so that's what I hope uh, the legacy will be. All of us who work here at the center just feel so lucky to be part of this great project of, uh, public education. And I hope that both visitors to Philadelphia and, and, if, and any listener who's in town, I hope will come by this beautiful museum of we, the people. We haven't talked about the gorgeous IM building that we're located in on independence mall, right across from independence hall, where the constitution and the declaration of independence were drafted. And we have, exciting exhibits and and live performances and and all sorts of rare the rarest original copies of the Constitution it's just a a thrilling physical space. Uh, But those who can't come visit us in Philly, go, go online go to the Interactive Constitution, go to the App Store pick an amendment that you didn't know about maybe one of the unfamiliar ones we've been talking about or a familiar one read the arguments on both sides explore areas of agreement and disagreement and make up your own mind. It is a wonderful privilege of citizenship and as my Hero Justice Brandeis said, if we would be guided by the light of reason, we must let
2: our minds be bold. And that has been Jeff Rosen, the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, a professor at GW School of Law, contributing editor, journalist, and author, who speaks about uh, a passion of lifelong learning that leads to the primacy of logos over pathos uh, as a two-and-a-half-century-old cautionary tale from a constitutional framer James Madison uh, that the fate of the republic really rests uh, upon uh, the ability of the citizenry to be engaged and to engage their logical faculties uh, when selecting the representatives, uh, and that an awareness of our own rights, uh, in fact, is the the crux upon which the existential survival of our republican experiment depends. Uh, Jeff speaks... About uh, the importance of nonpartisan civic education towards this end, uh, and how he uses the National Constitution Center as a convening space where individuals can find common ground about upon to, which they can discuss core democratic American principles, even though they may fundamentally disagree on a plethora of issues. Uh, so, Jeff, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much. It's been a
2: real pleasure.
0: This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. Please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.